0: hello uh,
1: my name is martin doyle assistant editor of the irish times Uh, welcome to the latest irish Times book club podcast uh, this month with owen mcnamee and also here in the studio we've got gary doyle uh, a soccer writer an owen mcnamee fan and my brother and declan burke who's our month does a monthly crime column for the irish times owen mcnamee was last week awarded the fifteen euro Kerry Group Irish Novel of the Year prize for Blue is the Night, the third book in his Blue trilogy, which began in 2001 with Blue Tango and continued in 2010 with Orchid Blue. The common thread in this noir or darkest blue triptych based on three real-life murders is Lance Curran. Blue Tango is about the murder of his daughter Patricia. In Orchid Blue he is the hanging judge in the case of another murdered 19-year-old girl. Blue is the Night is ostensibly about another murder case that Curran was prosecuting, a seemingly open and shut case in which a Protestant handyman is facing the noose for the murder of a Catholic woman, but inexorably the narrative turns like a compass needle to magnetic north, to the murder of Patricia Curran, and in particular the character of her mother Doris. Owen, first of all, could you read a short passage from the book to give us a flavour? Sure
0: Martin. The phone rang, calls in the night time after time the summons comes at night ferguson thinks that the last call to judgment will be such a summons that patricia might hearken to it and be raised even the eyeless succubus in her painted chest would pay heed he had heard the voice at the other end of the line 24 years hence and it had not changed and he felt the malice in it why now he remembered the photograph in the telegraph that day the judge and his priest son ferguson expected and was given a time and a place He went to his car, the dread rendezvous. He drove along the locked shore in the dark. The masthead lights of ships showed beyond the bar. He could see night waves on the shoal rocks, their surge and billow. He stopped at the gates of the glen. He crossed the road to the telephone box, its frail light votive in the gathered dark. As the caller had said, there was a manila envelope in the directory shelf. He opened the envelope and slid from it a charcoal drawing of a nude woman, a life drawing. The woman sat with her legs under her, Head turned away, haunch and breast exposed. The phone rang, the same voice as before. Taylor, the button man. You found the envelope, Mr. Ferguson? Where'd you get this drawn, Taylor? I seen her sitting beside you at the trial, reckon she was more than just the boss's daughter. Where did you get it? The night she got killed, she was carrying a folder, books, a yellow cap, a Juliet cap. That's it. They weren't there, were they, when the body was found? The drawing, Taylor. Kern made a card out of me in the witness box. I told him what I knew, but he wouldn't stop. You never went to Canada. You waited for Patricia on the driveway. I seen Kern at the bookies on the dog track, acting like he was better than all of us when he was the same. Or worse. He pulled her into the trees. Kern hanged that boy McGladdery. She would have sat there and watched her dad put on the black cap the way he had, had, the judge put it on for me. Patricia. Stuck up. Who would you think she was? I seen the way she looked at me, like I was dirt. There's only one answer to that. Did you take the drawing from her folder? They're all the same when they're on their back, and they're all the same when they're lying in heart's blood. I kept that drawing in the box of tricks special for you, Mr. Ferguson. I knew you'd like a souvenir of the dear departed. Mightn't be the first souvenir you got offer. her. Taylor was still talking when Ferguson put the phone down. he had never considered Taylor a suspect in Patricia's murder. he had never thought that Taylor or another man unknown to him, some enemy of Kern, had hidden in the trees to wait for Patricia. Now it seemed as likely as any other conclusion. Taylor, Doris, Cutbush, Lancelot Kern. They had gathered about Patricia. They had made a fellowship of themselves. He thought that if one of them had not taken her life then another would have stepped forward. He opened the telephone box door onto the pavement. To his left, the driveway led through the woods where Patricia had been found, to the house now shuttered and unseen, the Glen, the judge's house. The phone would ring again. His life had been made of such appointments, men who bade him come to them that they might show how they had mastered the world when the truth was that they had always attended to his will. The rich and the beggared, the guilty and innocent, those who had been bought, those who had been sold. He looked down at the drawing. The nude woman crouched, alert, ready for flight. Some days after Taylor had been released, Ferguson had seen Patricia on University Road with a group of school friends. In the uniform, uniforms of pleated skirts and seam stockings, they seemed aloof and knowing. In the evenings, when they had gone home to Malone and Hollywood, the silken they left a little of themselves behind to the night settling in on the university streets, the ghosts of longing abroad in the dark. Years after Patricia's death, Ferguson would walk these streets and think that she was there somewhere, close by in the dusk. Patricia had not waited at the courthouse on the day of Taylor's conviction, nor. Had he ever been alone in her company again? After her murder, stories had reached him of Patricia's men, of her reputed promiscuity. These men had never shown themselves, and he had never found them. But they would be forever her companions in the dark. In this faithless city, the story was all.
1: If I could ask you... You were eight years old, I read, when you first came across a photo of Patricia Curran in a yellowed newspaper clipping in your parents' drawer. You've just written your third book about her and her family 13 years after the first in 2001. Can you explain the fascination?
0: Well, yes, I mean, I, I think there's something very uh, very attractive about the figure of Patricia. Something that, something that haunted and haunting face. I mean, it wasn't it was the photograph, but it was also that well-known photograph of her and, and, and those, those dark eyes that draw you in the mesmeric void. But it was also a way of, I mean, m- my theory for what it's worth is that noir is a, is a, is a Calvinist construct and um, it was exported from places like um, the north of Ireland and Scotland to America in, in particular. And anyone could really sort of bring it back in mean, the kind of sense that the uh, of, of predestination, of uh, there's always a hand in the scale, God's hand is always in the scale, it's weighed against you, and, and, and you, uh, you you raise a fist against it. And I always find these noir textures, and this story, story Patricia Kern encapsulated those textures. And then I suppose it went on to, I mean, her, her father, uh, uh, Judge Lancelot Kern, is also a particularly fascinating figure. In fact, the whole family are fascinating. They all behave in this um, heightened theatrical manner. Her brother Desmond, who left, who was a proselytizer for moral rearmament, who pursued um, souls with loving relentlessness, suddenly became a Catholic. Became a Catholic priest, practised in South Africa for five decades uh, in in the townships, where he was known as Isaban, which in in the Zulu language means uh, the lamp. Uh, Patricia herself was larger in life from mother, uh, her mother Doris was uh, raised in Broadmoor Hospital for the criminally insane as a superintendent's daughter. So I mean, the whole the whole family. Uh, but there is a sense of where I've been haunting them over three books and now they're starting to haunt me
1: The hunter becomes the hunted Gary um, can I ask you as as a reader um, how did uh, the book strike you?
2: What What struck me initially was just how fast paced it moved you could you got a sense from from growing up 30, 40 miles from where the, the murder took place you got a sense of being easily taken back in time being able to visualise uh, the long drive the avenue on the rise being able to to picture these big grand rooms within the within the house and the, the what you, the most thing that you got a sense of was was the tension that existed in that house between the mother and the daughter between the brother and the daughter between the father and everybody and then the way that Owen was able to describe the courtroom scenes was was really striking and you were able the, the conversations, that were going on between between Ferguson, who is the not not the hero of the book, but certainly a, a key figure in the book, in that he sort of brings out the characters of of the uh, of the Kern family so 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 strongly. Um, what what really struck me was the fact that this was a family in turmoil before the turmoil actually happened, and I think you did a you did a really fine job in terms of. Allowing the reader to to visualize every conversation, uh, to to be there. And it's not an easy thing to do, uh, but but that was that was a big success for me. Um, biggest success for me was being able to read it with two kids under four. <laughs> the only <laughs> books I get to read these days are Thomas the Tank Engine and Aga Through the Blues the Night and Two and Two Two Goes. Uh, 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 success for your writing and uh, a success for insomnia.
0: <laughs> me all over the field. Isn't it?
1: And Gary, can I just ask you, you started off with the third in the trilogy. Did that, um, when you discovered that it was actually part of a trilogy, was that an issue for you?
2: It was, yeah, because I I, I was onto you. I wanted to get my hands on the first two books because I didn't want number three to, to spoil it for me. But again, it's a success. It's, it's your success that it was, well, I'm not letting this down. I've started this book. I want to finish this. And, and sure enough, I went straight back to it. You just, some books you get into it and you never finish some books out of stubbornness you refuse to to let go and some books you just have to you make time and you have to you have to find find the time you have to find a way to to get there to uh, to, to want to to want to finish it and it was it was dramatic like you know you were you were you wanted to know who did it <laughs> uh, you wanted to know uh, what the what the outcome would be and that was that was the success it was it was it was fast moving. I could picture uh, Robert the painter going into the house. I could I could picture the the murder unfolding. I could picture inside the cell when when Ferguson went there. You could you could picture the courtroom. You could you had you had a visual. I've never seen that photograph of Patricia that you are talking about, but in my in my head I was able to to paint a picture through your writing of what she looked like, of how tall she was, of how she dressed. I was able to paint a picture of Belfast in the 1940s and 1950s of the the traffic going past, how it would be quieter than it would be today. And as I say, it's very, very difficult. Well, I write a right soccer, so it's not, the, it's not the same. But it's very, very difficult to to form those pictures. And yet reading it, it seemed very, very easy.
1: It's interesting what you say there, you're desperate <coughs> to get to the end to find out who did it. But of mm. course, we're not in the territory of a, of a who it here, um, because I think you've said before, the job of a writer is to deepen the mystery. At the same time, you've also said that by delving into the mystery, sometimes you can you can get to the truth in that sense. Um, like I kind of th- see your, your fiction or this trilogy almost as kind of artistic reconstructions as an attempt to, to get at the truth um, in the same way, that crime scene reconstruction again is there to jog people's memories or whatever. Um, lost my thread now. Yeah, just <laughs> a, a, on that.
0: Um, I mean, I, I felt you know I had to go back to Doris, I had to go back to Patricia's mother and, and Patricia herself uh, in the third book. And although the, the Patricia's murder, which remains unsolved to this day, um, from uh, nineteen fifty-two, uh, although I think that I didn't solve it in the book and I didn't really set out to solve it. Somehow it resolves the story. I think the ending of 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 Blues Night, to me anyway resolves the story in, in a satisfying way. I hopefully
1: interesting you say that because I kind of think I almost sort of got the sense that, that was almost a, a bit of misdirection or whatever or um an attempt to kinda of, to keep the story open because up until that point perhaps um all the evidence, or or all the kind of the construction of the narrative, was kind of pointing, in in one particular way, and and by ending it as you did, you kind of said, well, actually, you know, we cannot be sure, and there are you know there are other theories, there are other hypotheses. Um,
0: yeah, but but I think it, it 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 brings it around to to some kind of a resolution. I, I think it. it I don't know what you say, honestly, a, a kind of a, a narrative resolution, if you like, rather than get a re- re- resolution in the real world as to who actually did it. Um, I mean, as you say, I mean, the phrase I use like a bat ram, you know, the, the job of all art is to deepen the mystery. And um, I mean, I, I wanted the whole thing to end with the resonance continuing. In actual fact, I continue to gather material, and material keeps coming up at me about all of the, of, of, of the, the three murders. And when I say kind of I'm haunted by the thing, I mean, there, there is a sense that there, there's a kind of fourth book lurking out there somewhere, which I'm trying desperately to, to resist. But.
1: It's interesting what you say there, because it's obvious, like, a lot of these events happen within living memory. There are people... Um, Around today who who not only remember those, but I think you mentioned before that uh, you met someone whose father had actually served on on the jury of the McLattery trial, which is at the center of Orchid Blue, the second book in the trilogy
0: yes, and I met um, I, I met people who who were actually in the courtroom that day um, a man who was kind of sidled up to me in the street, more or less, and handed me an envelope, which he got a Freedom of Information request, which contained, it was for the, uh, a brown envelope, he said it came with a brown envelope for the intention of the investigating officer of the case, C.J. Kennedy, the original case, and inside was a single sheet of paper torn in half. And on that sheet of paper was written the timeline of the night of Patricia's murder. At the end of it, someone had written in careful, sort of copperplate writing, if, if these events are true, then the kerns are lying. You know, and everything that kind of comes with the case seems to to to, to be theatrical and have you know, kind of full of nuance, and and you know, there's always that there's, you know sort of people behaving in, 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 in a strange and kind of quite theatrical way over the thing, so it it keeps resonating. All three cases keep resonating.
1: Looking at it, looking at it in another way, um, is there um, a difficulty in writing about real events? In writing about people, relatives who of whom are still alive, for example, I think there was some criticism of um, Blue Tango at the John Hewitt Summer School from someone claiming to represent the Curran family. Again, another of your books, The Ultras, which is about Robert Narak, and I believe that there's um, an objection from his father, Morris, about um, the portrayal in the book, the suggestion that he might have been complicit in the the Miami Showband massacre. Um, how would you? Um, deal well, I mean, with, you know,
0: that in that terms problem? of the kind of facts of that, a lot of the stuff is kind of bubbling to to, to the surface now. Um, I would say, w- w- I mean, my, you know, um, my job as a writer, I, I, I kind of struggled with the kind of, of with the morality of that, of of, of taking these things and real events and putting words into people's mouths and taking uh, stories, it, often directions which they may not have gone in. Although oddly enough, you tend to find yourself in the in the correct place at the end of them. Um, and I, I realised, you know, in, in many ways, to resolve it to myself, what I said, well, I woke up one night and I said, you know what this is? this is? This is actually a sin. This is my own personal responsibility. Uh, and if I cross the line, well, then I'll answer to that for whoever you answer to your sins for. Um, but I don't have the same responsibility society as a priest or a lawyer or might have to, to put the facts out there. And, you know, in actual fact, it was said to me about my, uh a senior civil servant in the north in in relation to uh Narek and the ultras that um he said and this is back when it came out it was 2003 um was and uh, you know it's very much about the, the the covert war and he said this is the only way these things will ever be investigated or ever be looked into is true art and of course I, I i thought it was a cop but natural fact he knew that the papers have been shredded the the, the, the traces and then footsteps were, were been were, were been dragged over um so
1: Totally. Um, I can see how I believe myself that um, where the facts are not known, um, it's perfectly legitimate to use the, your imagination to try and get at the truth. My only question would be where the facts are known, is it okay then for artistic purposes or for the, the narrative, um, the, the, the good of the story if you like, to alter those facts?
0: Well, I suppose the fundamental facts. I mean, the, the, the skeletons of the books are all are, are all based on the, on the fa- on fact. Um, as I say, I don't have an absolute answer to that. And many things with these books, there's nothing absolute about it. Um, and the only thing I can say is about it, I take responsibility on myself for doing it and, and answer to it. And, and if you like, in a kind of moral forum rather than
1: as an abstract point, though, like whatever with this book or whatever, like, do you think it is okay if you're writing something based on on a true story to kind of change facts for for the good of the the narrative for the good of the
0: fiction. I don't know because you, when you start looking into these stories, then everything becomes unclear, and you know, the facts are very few and far between. So you know, I'm are not the, sure.
1: Are the facts sacred? Would you say? Sorry. Are the facts sacred as they are known?
0: Um. As they are known, yes, I would think so, yeah. Mm-hmm. And they tend to be the points around which you revolve, around you build a story, story sure, from, um, sure. rather than kind of actually altering fundamental facts about it. Mm-hmm.
1: Thanks. Declan, um, can I ask you um, what your interpretation of what your initial response to the story was, and then maybe broaden that out into kind of looking at <coughs> Owen's work in the context of both Irish crime fiction, on and then maybe sort of the the global noir
3: tradition. Okay, could take a while, uh, <laughs> but uh, um, yeah, I think it's worth saying we, we you were talking about the this being the third uh, book in in I think what Owen is called an accidental uh, trilogy, but chronologically the events uh, most of the events in this book come before mm-hmm. the, the first two books. So in a sense, it's almost as if uh, Owen is kind of closing a circle and and yet uh, creating uh, an ongoing uh, uh, mystery that, as you said, it's not necessarily. Um, it's definitely not a, a whodunit. on it. It's not even a kind of a how done um, it, it. It's more a book about uh, the mystery of character and rather than justice being served, which is the the, the, the point of most uh, crime fiction. Uh, this book is more about the nature of justice and can we trust justice? Um, I think in 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 terms of Irish crime fiction, Owen is is in in my opinion, he's, he's one of the two. Uh, great leading lights of it, uh, along with John Connolly, both come back to the 1990s. Uh, they, they, they first published um, on Resurrection Man, man, and what he represents, I think, is is un- is unique in the canon of, of Irish crime fiction because he uh, because he brings that quality of very dark noir. We don't have a history of of noir in this country. If we go back through the the, the great uh, novels of fiction about crime in in this country, they have been very odd, bizarre, maybe strange uh, murders and real-life murders upon which fiction have been based. But it's very hard to describe them uh, as noir in the classic sense of the the, the, the character, the hero slash anti-hero, whichever one you, you want to describe it. Um, the, the finger of, of being put on them before they were born, this idea of predestination that we get with the Calvinist uh, take on noir as, as Owen describes. And here in Ireland, because the Republic of Ireland particularly was, was historically Catholic, uh, we didn't have that sense of Calvinism, and, and noir tended to to, to flourish in, in in America, in in Britain, uh, where where the Protestants uh, w- was the dominant religion, and that was more of a a common concept. I, I think with the the, uh, the the Blue Trilogy, the idea of it being um, of it being true noir is, isn't uh, isn't entirely true. I think because the, the nature of justice that's explored is about uh, y- you know that, that idea of Calvinist noir doesn't really apply because Lancelot Kern is at the heart of the the, the books and, and he is a judge he's in the position of dispensing justice and he has got a hand on the scales and he's tipping uh the scales in in uh, in a particular direction that there's um, his summing up to the jury in the uh, the case of the um the McLatterie uh, case, for example, which uh, Owen described, at one point is essentially it was, it was a steer, as we as we call it. He might as well have been winking to the jury uh, as he was doing his his summing up. So there's there's a skewed version of of noir, and, and the, the classic noir, uh, in my opinion, going all the way back to the '30s and '40s and '50s, in in America, we had like people like uh, Pope noirists like David Goodis and, and Jim Thompson, uh, Cornel Woolrich, all of whom were about that idea of fate having you know, destroy the character even before he or she uh, begins. And and despite how they may shake their fists at, at their fate, as Owen says, uh, the reader knows that, you know, they, they are doomed um, by by the end of the story. Actually, Owen, Owen wrote a, um, a, an essay for Down these Green Streets a couple of years back, uh, which kind of puts the, the Blue Trilogy in context. I'll just read a quick paragraph if I can. He's talking about... Um, the, 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 the Patricia Curran case in particular, and he says, the case is all the attr- attributes of classic noir. There are themes of corruption and deceit. There are political undercurrents. There is the beautiful doomed victim and the brooding powerful figure of her father, the judge. It is easy to imagine the whole affair transposed to Los Angeles in the 50s, Black Dahlia territory, to Holland W. Burnett or Kane into the ghostwritten terrain, set the current house in Laurel Canyon, give it to Ross MacDonald and let him track back into the family, the taint of incest hanging in the air, the cast of supporting characters like something from Jim Thompson, awash with bad faith. And, and that's as terrific a, summat, a summation, I think, that there is of, of the Blue Trilogy.
1: Thanks very much, Declan. On the point of, of Lance Curran, and when I reviewed the book in the Irish Times when it came out, my one issue was that whereas in, the, in Blue Tango there was suspicion hang over his head, in Orchid Blue there was the black cap of a hanging judge over his head and yet here in Blue is the Night he's the prosecuting counsel who is actually determined to see justice done only to be undone by his fixer and so to my mind that puts some kind of a twisted halo over his head and in the overarching um, narrative of the trilogy I kind of thought that that bit didn't fit it was almost as if you know he's on the right side for once how does that how do you square that with um his his personality or his well, personal I, I mean
0: what i'm interested in what, what in in as you say in kind an of overarching sense with with the three books is um, corruption and how people become corrupted so the uh, the, the uh, robert taylor the robert the painter case predates um his elevation lances elevation to judge judgeship and attorney general you know high flyer attorney general at 36 um, and the wager he's a gambling man, he was notoriously a gambling man. Uh, and the wager he makes with his fixer Ferguson is he said, I will prosecute, as, as he did in actual fact. And the, the, the transcripts, the, the, the excerpts in the book are from the court transcripts. And he prosecutes Taylor with a merciless and, and, and intelligent zeal. Um, it, it's, a, it's a textbook prosecution. Um, and it, the, the deal that he makes with Ferguson is Ferguson said, if you get him off, we'll do things your way uh, or sorry if you if you you get them hanged we'll do things your way if i get them off then we do things my way and of course the case as historically happened was was un- undermined uh and uh and taylor got off so i mean my thesis and it, uh, in a way it goes back into into my own family if if the uh if the thing that you put your faith in turns out to be terminally corrupt does that corrupt you as a legal system in, in the north mm-hmm, walls mm-hmm. um, and arguably all legal systems have, have that element in them, but I mean, it was particularly corrupt in the North. So the young Kern was a believer.
1: Mm-hmm. His integrity was thwarted. And once
0: his integrity was thwarted, once, once the integrity of the system in which yeah. he, he put his faith was thwarted.
1: Mm-hmm. Your own father was a lawyer. Um, I think I read somewhere that you read some of the, the files of the torture cases that he... He worked on uh, in the north. Is that? It's
0: funny. I started writing a piece on that today on the train on the way up. Yes. Uh, I mean, I remember uh, he he had a case which was uh, subsumed into the, uh, the 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 um, the challenge or the, the Ireland versus the UK, which was a torture case. Um, and he also had a, P, a C, another case which was a piece of case law which was important in it. But I remember lying at home reading um, the essentially the unmediated statements of the people who had been tortured of the five techniques, which of mm-hmm. course were um, brought through to Iraq. And there was something about these um, the hooded man, the that? hooded man. These which the cases now um, come up again. Amal Clooney is involved in it apparently. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there was something about these sheets of paper with a smell of developing fluid or um, copying fluid off them, inky, smudged, and it was like, as the, being the, as a child, I mean, I, I was reading this, you know, I read everything. I was reading this, everything from Desmond Bagley to Blake to, to the Yeats. But it was almost like the 20th century had forced its way into our living room. You mm-hmm. know, we were sort of brutish, bloodstained. Um, and this was the real world. And once you can, once you read that, mm-hmm. there was no going back. There was no other way to, to, to go at it. Um, although, funnily today, because it was... It was um, Keats come into my mind when I was thinking about Mal Clooney and George Clooney coming to Belfast doing this thing and um, almost uh, you know, it's, it's the line of whoever, uh, forever shall thou love when she be gay. And the two people fixed and the, the ode to a Grecian vase, the, the young man chasing the girl for a kiss. Mm-hmm. And they're always, uh, he's always running after and never catching her, but she never gets any further away. And it struck me as the legal process in all these cases is something similar, is that you run after the truth in it. And as mm-hmm. Keats says mm-hmm. in the poem, truth is beauty, beauty is truth. Um, you're always running af- after it and it's the, the essence of the kind of legal work that people are doing on, on, on that and it kind of it, it brings a bit of face back into being that system is that you never really get any closer to them but you keep them in sight you you, you keep the bad guys in sight and I, mean, I think that's, that's mm-hmm. the essence of it
1: And did your dad mind you reading these presumably I, I, quite grim I, I, materials? I don't hmm? think you give a
0: <laughs> <laughs> one way or another Um I mean, he was a kind of, you know, a, 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 in a way, a, a, at the time, a crusading lawyer. Um, uh, uh, you know, every time I sort of see Pat, that sort of famous photograph of Pat Finucane coming out of the courtroom, I think, of, of, of him. Mm-hmm. But he was a, a an, an immaculate uh, um, lawyer in his way, uh, but the system he worked in was completely corrupt. And I suppose, in a way, I'm not doing something as as trying to replace, re- retrace his steps in, in, in Lance Kern. But I'm just, I'm, I'm in the territory. Sure. He became, I suppose, what was known now, a kind of rogue solicitor and, and wasted much of his life. But when you go back to those things, so it, it's that, um, I go back to, there's a photograph of my parents, I've talked about this before, In, in and they're, say, 1958 or so, and they're sitting in the Sleep Donald Hotel, I think, in, in Newcastle, and mm-hmm. my father is wearing an um, evening dress, my mother is wearing a silk dress, which she made herself from a pattern from Vogue magazine, and her hair is up in a French bun, and they're smoking cigarettes. and. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's something kind of very glamorous, also kind of slightly kind of who did you think they were thing about it, but it's that photograph, the class. atmosphere, yes, and and they didn't see the catastrophe was coming down the tracks at them uh, either personally or or in, in terms of the troubles. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the the atmosphere of the book, that noir texture, is also contained in, in, in photographs like that. How
2: did you how did you bring
0: alive? Uh, the characters,
2: from the from the information that you would have been reading from your research, how did you how did you did you turn uh, the script from a from a courtroom extract, or or from newspaper extracts? How did you how did you turn that into a conversation that we've that we've read in the book?
0: There's always something, you know. Um, I, I think Robert Taylor. There was there was something about kind of. He had. Um, he was. I can't remember the, name of the He was named after a child film star. A nickname after a child film star. Like, the boyish face and something mm-hmm. with the boyish killer that, and and the, the very sort of amoral and cold way he killed this poor woman. There's always a detail um, with um I mean, we say with the first book, with, with I, I couldn't write about. it, I couldn't find a way into it, even though I knew about the case until I read that Ian Hay Gordon had. Uh, whistled the tune The Blue Tango mm-hmm. uh, Ian Hay Gordon was a man who was falsely accused of the murder and his conviction o- overturned 40 years uh, later um, until he read that he whistled the tune The Blue Tango when he was um, being interrogated uh, and I realised that that was not just the title of the book it was a texture it was a feel it was noir feel, feel of the book there's always something um, I remember reading because I work a kind of psychic relationship between Doris um, Patricia's mother and her Broadmoor connection been brought up there and Thomas Cutbush who was uh, one of the chief suspects for being Jack the Ripper? Who was in, is, who was incarcerated in Broadmoor at the time? She would have been there, mm-hmm. and I read through his, his, his admission report, and the doctor described him said, five foot eight, dark hair, went on in various details, and then it was eyes dark blue, very sharp. You know, all of a sudden as phrase makes you stand back. So all those kind of little things, and it's very. Uh, I go with things visually. I try, and you were talking about being in the courtroom, and mm-hmm. and. Um, I try and visualize where it is, and um, go into the texture of it, and I kind of sense, and... uh,
2: Would you do that by going back to Belfast, by going to White Abbey, by walking around? No, it's it's
0: really from memory, and I I kind of, I I switch, um, you know, I kind of use my own memories to to build something. I mean, the the research tends to be done loosely at the start, and then the kind of intense research done when the book is finished, to make sure that, that it's right. But I find that if you, if you, Look at something closely. If you listen to something closely, the world actually reveals itself to you if you if you if you really examine it. Um, so I mean that that's a way of kind of bringing things alive. I mean I used um, the the atmosphere of the courtroom, which funny enough, a case which was part of the of um, of of the uh, the the England uh, or Ireland versus UK case. Uh, and my dad brought us out of, out of school to to see this case being won. And uh, he brought us to what I thought it was Armagh, myself and my brother, we were kind of, you know, seven and nine at the time. And I used that courtroom, as I remembered it, mm-hmm. um, to, and I remember the judge Rory Conan, who was later shot at the IRA, standing up and te- or sitting there and telling the two pl- army witnesses that they were liars, and it's very sort of a dramatic thing. And uh, I just went back to, to, to look it up, because I used this courtroom atmosphere for the, for the McClattery case, and then went back and looked it up, In actual fact it was down Patrick Courthouse where McClattery was tried, um, where uh, Kern put the black square of silk on his head to sentence him to death, uh, where one person was in the courtroom said to me, uh, a reporter, a veteran reporter, said to me he was crying, and I said I'm glad he was crying. He said no, no, Kern was crying, and then another person who was a witness in in, in the courtroom at the same date said to me, leant over to me and sort of said in kind of hissing whisper, Kern that day was a disgrace.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, but but. But it yeah. I mean, one of these odd kind of synchronicities that my childhood memory and this courthouse that I and the courthouse that I described turned out to be the actual courthouse.
1: Mm-hmm. Declan, that was your way into um, this book in your review as well, wasn't it? The Cotbush's eyes. Um,
3: yeah, I, I was very surprised when I came across that uh, aspect of the book, and and Doris was was turning out to be the most poignant uh, character of the entire trilogy, and then suddenly we're presented with her. Backstory, uh, Broadmoor, Cutbush, and and suddenly went to Jack the Ripper territory, um, and and the conversation has been littered with references to to Gothic uh, elements, and and as the book went on, I was kind of going, how how is he going to gel the you know no, noir and, and goth Gothic uh, uh, tropes? They're, they're not necessarily uh, run together very smoothly. How did you were you aware oh my God? I'm going to have to work two kind of distinct styles together. I'm going to have to mesh two styles here together.
0: I think i kind of do that anyway so i mean i've been doing it for quite quite a long time the, the well, gothic i think yeah the, the gothic things. always seems to intrude um yeah. there um i mean you're not kind of self-consciously bringing two literary styles together it, it, you know you, you you kind of think you find a thing you want to write about and then you write about it in the way that it demands to be written about and it's and if you could do that successfully then it's organic and it feels it feels okay if it, it it feels right i mean it was something the book there are three different timelines and three different main uh, plot lines, and it's a third book in a trilogy. And I was going, why, "Why, why am I bringing this on myself?" Uh, but it worked, and there is a, a, there's some kind of alchemy in, in real stories. There's an architecture to real stories, which if you were to try and create them, uh, it would seem inauthentic. You you seem to be kind of pushing that. You'd be pushing the kind of an art of. But there is something about real stories that, that, that because they actually happen. That you can write quite strange tales and quite almost far fetched elements. Stranger than fiction. Yeah, and, and but 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 it it it, it brings true.
1: Yeah. One of the things that we haven't touched on so much, perhaps, is perhaps what is um, you're most famous for, which is um, a kind of a very distinctive heightened writing style or or language. Um, there's a sense that. Um, Perhaps that is what is needed to deal with extremes of behaviour. For example, the violence in the North. I'm thinking back to Resurrection Man, which is based on uh, the Shankle Butchers, which is one of the, the worst episodes or, or series of murders in the North. Is that one aspect? And I'm thinking. Where does that maybe that heightened style or or that language come from? Is it fed by perhaps uh, the language of the Bible? I'm thinking of the north. There's a famous scene at the start of Cal where a preacher, a rural preacher, is hammering a Bible tract to a tree. There is a sort of heightened kind of... um, biblical language in in the Protestant tradition. Is that is that one of the roots of your writing style at yeah,
0: all? Yeah, I mean it is a kind of you know, kind of Presbyterian Gothic um, I mean the 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 cliche is that the plain spoken Ulsterman but in actual fact uh, the, the, the 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 language and, and if you like, the, the basis and ideas of that language is, is much more high-flown and much more lyric in a, in a, mm-hmm. in a very, uh, sometimes quite a dark way. I, mean, I, I remember being at a, a funeral in, in Lurgan years and years ago and, on, up in the Lock Shore, and it was a friend, a guy I worked with, so I didn't really know the family. And um, I remember it was a bleak January af- Sunday afternoon and uh, the cretage of men, of course the women don't go, walked out to the Lock Shore, this little graveyard with a grave opened, and the preacher stood up on a on a height with his book of laws in his hand, and the wind was whipping in off the lock, and his robes were streaming out, and the, his first words were, men, will you be saved, or will you be damned? And I thought, that cracks everything that, <laughs> that I want to write about.
1: Like, there is a sort of the sense of Johnny Cash, like, you know, I think it's no surprise that country and western or American country music is so popular in the north, because you can just imagine... Johnny Cash singing uh, one of his songs as a kind of a backdrop uh, to that type of scene
0: Yeah but there, I mean there, there's, there's a moral complexity to it as well which, which um, I'm, I'm interested in you know there's a, there's a thinking about, about the laws um, but there's also lyricism in it as well um, that, that, that draws me to it
3: You're often compared to um, James Ellroy and we were talking beforehand Gary and I about David Peace. The kind of books he writes and the way he writes about them, um, and they both obviously write about or have written about um, real-life crimes uh, and, and fictionalise them. Is is that uh, gothic Presbyterian as you're describing? Is is there uh, a necessity to make the language more than it is in because it is real-life crimes that you're that you're writing about?
0: Um, yeah, I, I see what you mean, but but. Um, I think the purpose of the language is to draw on the whole world. You, you know, it, it's, it, it, that, that what you're writing about, and allow it to speak to you. So, I mean, that, that language necessarily becomes heightened. You're really only responding to, you're allowing the world to reveal itself to you. So, I mean, what I try to do with the language, uh, you, you, from the very first book, which was a novella, The Last of days, was to write, I, if you like, a heightened language. But to work on it tonally, so if you look at, kind of say, something like Resurrection Man, and the some of the, the blue books as well, there's a the use of sort of a kind of language of reportage, or a kind of flat tone in Resurrection Man, it was a very cold eye was cast on what was happening. Mm-hmm. So you mm-hmm. anchor this, if you like, kind of lyric language into something which stops it from becoming overblown. And it keeps, I mean, as simple as keep, keeping the reader's eye on the page, mm-hmm. if, if, if you know what I mean. Um, I mean, I do try and find the lyric and everything, whether that be a a, a dark lyric or not. But I mean, uh, it's the kind of the the, the impetus for for me to write, really, and in the end is, is, um, what does it look like? What does it sound like?
1: There was an interview that you did with Arminta Wallace in the Irish Times last year in which you said, there's a sense from publishers and publicity people that I've been booted out of the literary drawing room into the alley and I kind of like it out there. Um, I, I read somewhere else um, that, say back in your early days at Picador under Peter Strauss, yeah. uh, you were sort of part of a high-flying Irish trio with Colum Taveen and Pat McCabe. I just wonder as they kind of you know progressed into the kind of literary pantheon whatever um while you're walking the mean streets how, like were you comfortable um with you know how your career developed or
0: absolutely would- yeah i mean uh, I, i'm i don't regret a single word that i've written um years ago when i wrote resurrection man my damn girlfriend and my wife i gave it to her to read and she sat and she read it sat for kind of four or five hours right way through it and uh she finished it, and she put it down, and I said, what do you think? And she said, "It's brilliant, It's great. And uh, then she said, and they'll never forgive you. And then I went on to write books like The Ultras, and 1223, which is the Anna book, and the very political books that are, uh, in, in their own ways, kind of small political events. And I mean, I remember at the, the height of the film of Resurrection Man, when we were being pilloried, we were getting death threats, um, the English press were coming down very heavy on us, particularly the, the, the Tory press, and I get a feeling you know, if I'm offending all these people, I'm doing something right. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And you know, pantheons are you know come and go. I mean, all them in the You know, um, um, I my place uh, is on a path that I've chosen for myself, and and I don't regret, as I say, a single word.
2: When you're writing these novels, Owen, and you're writing about such dark things, such as murder and and the death, the death of a daughter, how how does that affect your mood? Does it? Does it cre- when when you were writing it? Did, did it creep creep over your your mood during those months?
0: No, not really. Um, you know, in a way, when you're writing, you're kind of more concerned about getting. The, if, if the writing's not going well, that's when when, when the, the, never, you know, never mind a death. <laughs> yeah, never mind a <laughs> Something death. Something as blase as that. <laughs> uh, it's, you know, it's, it's a very kind of cold dye to cast on it. I, I think and. Um, you know, as you get older, you you, you realize, you know. And, and I talked to David a piece about this, and and he said um, one of the images through through the um, Red Riding books is a a child with an angel's wings stitched into its back, and he said, I said, you know, that was that was an image too far. I said, in words, where I don't know what I was thinking of, since he had children himself, and you 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 realize that the 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 and particularly when, when you're writing about the north, I mean, the, the, the depth of 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 grief and 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 destruction and, and, and people torn apart, that's involved in that. So when you're writing about it, you try, I suppose you try and be remote from it. But as as you get older, and then I suppose you you know kind of have your own family, and it's, it's it's very difficult to reflect on on what these things do actually mean to people.
2: Did you did you end up liking any of the characters that you're you're writing about, given that they're
0: I kind of like all of them <laughs> that's kind of the problem um, but I mean going back to I mean one of the things that criticism say was le- leveled at R- Resurrection Man was that um, you took the shankled butchers and you made them human and my point would be these things are done by human beings if you call somebody a monster then you let them off the hook you say there's something other than the rest of us um, Yeah. Do, do you know what I mean you, yeah. I, um, somebody uh, spoke to me again at, 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 I, I, I did a sort of month tour of the north and very interesting people came up to me and um said one of the, one of the shankle butchers she worked with him in a community project in in belfast and she said he was just a little old man you know and he said we like cup of tea love and he did this this demeanor and she had to remind herself who she was and 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 what he'd done you know so those are the areas that 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 i like to get into you know the, the um you know the moral complexity of things and and i always felt particularly Northland not drawing kind of easy moral conclusions and and, and uh, you know not going with with the conventional narrative thing, like with with Robert the Painter, you certainly don't paint him in a
2: nice light at all.
0: Well, I mean, he murdered a, a, a middle aged woman in a particularly brutal way because he was getting married on on the Monday, and he'd uh, lost all his money and the dogs on on Friday night, and uh, marrying his pregnant girlfriend, um, and. Uh, you, you know, and, and he carried out this extraordinary brutal and, and cold crime and it, there was always something about him um, he wasn't hanged uh, that I felt I was interested in him in a way because I felt that this this is the kind of guy that doesn't go away he was supposed to have gone to uh, emigrate to Canada after the um, uh, after the case but in fact he didn't he stayed in, in Belfast uh, and it's environs, and I, mean, I don't know what happened to him he, he, he could still be alive but there was always a kind of feeling about how I looked at him and, and it, it just say, um, Gordon Byrne, who wrote a um, great writer, a great English writer who died there a few years ago, sadly, I mean, he said um, he did uh, books on the, um, somebody's, somebody's brother somebody's son about the Yorkshire Ripper, and then he wrote a book, Happy Like Murders, about Fred and Rosemary West. And he said, um, he said I can never do that kind of factual book again. He sat in the Fred and Rosemary West trial. He said, he said because you could feel the malice in the courtroom, you could feel the evil in the courtroom, and I think he was most disturbed by it. And somebody like like Taylor, mm-hmm. you could almost feel the malice rising off the page. And mm-hmm. and, and some, when when we talked about there being being casting a cold eye character, on people, mm-hmm. there's something about that, and there's something about particular characters that that, that, that you. You. Mm-hmm.
1: you studied law um, at sorry, was it in the north? Was Trinity, it Trinity, yeah. and a lot of lawyers. I think there's an article I read somewhere recently about. Uh, there's a catalogue of them who have turned to fiction and I wonder is that a coincidence or is there a connection I'm, like my own sort of theory off the top of my head was that maybe it's something to do with marshalling a lot of detail into a convincing narrative or I don't or I, I mean do I, I, I
0: can think that in the sense it gave me a forensic ability uh, in, in terms of, of examining things to a certain extent uh, but I think it might be more to do with the fact that uh, people who came through the arts, um, you know, who didn't, you know, didn't come through sciences, tended towards to people who who read and were more aware of literature. And if you like the kind of the, the height of that path, for want of a better word, in, in in academia is to do law. I mean, I think it's as simple as that. Mm-hmm. I don't mm-hmm. think there's much more to it. I mean, I, I think the study or the the practice of law itself is a. I mean, maybe lawyers disagree with me, but uh, it teaches you a certain way of thinking, mm-hmm. and that is uh, inimical to art. Uh, to, 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 you know, so I mean, uh, you know, Chekhov can be a doctor and a uh, and a um, and a writer, but a lawyer and a writer, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm,
3: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The old silver toned purveyors of fiction. <laughs> <laughs> so
1: can I ask you <clears throat> very quickly about the contrast between the the fiction that you write for adults? And the the stuff that you do for children. Is that a totally different Owen McNamee?
0: It's a totally different Owen I mean, McNamee as is the John Creed who writes thrillers for adults. Uh those books are um written uh, quite quickly. Uh the children's books were aimed at my own children and uh, although oddly enough, if you without going into the detail, they come from exactly the same grounding as Resurrection Man, um, the same piece of ground and the 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 um the Workhouse Graveyard in, in Kilkeel and County Down, both mm-hmm. books have kind of connections to that and to my own sort of childhood play, playing around there. Um, but th- there is one thing I would say about all of that process is that, um, you know, particularly the thrillers, are written for tongue in cheek, and they're also written to make a bit of money. And any writer who tells you that they moonlight doing something else for artistic reasons and not really do it to make money, mm. um, you can't orphan a book. You can't say, well, that's not my work. You know, you you have to stand by it for 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 good or ill.
1: Mm-hmm. There's a thread of con- conspiracy uh, running through your fiction. Uh, Some who wonder, are you paranoid or are they out to get us? Your next project, I believe, is Alex Higgins, and I'm kind of wondering what could possibly be the conspiracy angle there. Is there any suggestion that his drinks
0: were spiked? Uh, no, know. Well, I mean, conspiracy. Accusing somebody of being a conspiracy theorist is a a, a way of of, um, not facing up to the politics of of certain situations. I mean, somebody said you know, just because they're conspiracy theorists don't mean they aren't also conspiratorial politics. Mm -hmm. Um, No, uh, it it, I tell you what interests me about Alex Higgins and somebody said this to me um, a long time ago, they said that the only time he was still was when he drew back to the queue to hit the ball. It was the only time he wasn't moving wasn't Steve Davis said to him, he said, you could be potting the black in the world championship to win the world championship. And Alex Higgins would be sitting down and the crowd would be watching Alex Higgins. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> so, I mean, it's a book I'm kind of I'm stalled on, but I'm waiting for that, if you like, kind of blue tango moment. Mm-hmm. But he's an intriguing character.
1: You need an easy way, at an easy read. work your way in
0: (laughs) well I think it's the the long pot to the far (laughs) corner I have to pull off
1: Okay. well listen um, thanks very much for giving us your time Owen Um, thanks very much Declan and Gary for taking part as well Um, and thanks for listening and see you again next month